I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare to you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 50, which along with Psalm 54 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, January the 28th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being along today. I appreciate it. Um, We are continuing our look at the prophecies of Isaiah today in the 50th chapter, the first 11 verses of that chapter. We're continuing um, to look at the book of uh, the epistle to the Galatians, um, chapter 3, verses 15 to 22, and then the gospel according to Mark, chapter 6, verses 47 to 56. So uh, remember the setting, and I'm just going to remind you because I have to remind myself sometimes, and that is, is that the setting for Isaiah's prophecy is the people have gone into exile as both Isaiah and Jeremiah had prophesied. So thus says the Lord, where's your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? <clears throat> so she's, he's saying, so why were you sent away? Do you remember why you were sent away? Why you're in exile? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgression your mother was sent away. Why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert, the fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. So what the Lord's saying is is that that there's no divorce that's happened here. No, what's happened is is that, that God has put them away for a season of time. Because of their sins, because of their transgressions, he said, "Look, I came, and 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 it is, there's a comparison implied here between them and Sodom, because when I came, there was no man. Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Remember the bargaining that Abraham did over Sodom, largely because of Lot, we think, but but maybe he had a deeper concern than that. But what God's saying is, when I came, there was nobody, nobody. There was nothing to 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 build upon." And you could hear Jesus speaking in this as well. I mean, what you see in the life of Christ is that when he comes, what John tells us is his own received him not. In other words, they they were not prepared for him, didn't really want him. They wanted another kind of Messiah other than what Jesus was offering them. So that was the main problem, was that they weren't prepared. They were not prepared for him. They didn't want the righteousness that he brought. And so... They demanded instead that he be crucified. And now we move from God speaking to um, Isaiah's voice. But we could also say that it's Jesus' voice. He says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. In other words, I know what I'm speaking of, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And that's the the point of Jesus' messianic um, mission was to build up those who were weary. 
morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to those to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, and the words there is, is he's dug my ears out. In other words, they were covered over and they had to be opened. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And in that, we can certainly hear echoes of the passion of the Christ. We, we hear the echoes of the punishment that was given to Jesus prior to the crucifixion. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Who vindicates me is near. In other words, I'm persevering in this direction, no matter what the obstacles are to moving forward here. I, I am he, in, in the Gospels at one point, it will say he set his face to Jerusalem. In other words, he knew what lay before him, the suffering and the death that lay before him, but he set his face for Jerusalem in the same way that Isaiah speaks of here, and, and which is to say, I'm not going to be deterred from moving in that direction. I know which way the Lord has told me to go, and it doesn't matter what's done to me along the way. I will persevere unto the finish line. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Who will <clears throat> let him come near to me? Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. In other words, the, the one who will vindicate me, the one who will help me, the one who will declare me innocent is the one into eternity. You can hear the echo of Job in that, right? I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth, and in my eyes I will see God. He is convinced, Job was, that there was one who would ultimately vindicate him. Even though he couldn't be vindicated in the present, it looked like, he would ultimately, he believed, be vindicated, and he believed there was a Redeemer who would stand on the earth and who would plead his case before the Lord, and that ultimately truth will out. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying here, and that is the moth will eat up those who um, come against me, but, but he, and he alone, is eternal. And he asked the question, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. So it's important that we continue to listen to his voice, to fear him, and to obey the voice of the Lord. And he says, look, if you're in darkness and have no light, just put your faith and your trust in the name of the Lord. And the name of the Lord is Jesus. The Lord saves Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you've kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. In other words, what he's saying here is, is that, that if you're not walking by the light of God's word and his direction, if you're not walking by that light and in that light, then you're lighting, you're making your own light, which is insufficient to guide you into truth. And we live in a time in a post-Christian world where that describes the vast majority of the people in this world. They're walking by their own light. And that's why you get these ridiculous statements about this is your truth and this is my truth. No, there is truth, and that's Jesus. And so we need to be clear on where we are, and we need to keep ourselves in that truth. And we can only do it through prayer and study and devoting our lives to living out what he has commanded. In the gospel, remember Jesus has, has um, 
that tried to get away yesterday to a desolate place with the disciples after their mission work, and then they were unable to do that because the people ran ahead of them. Jesus taught them many things there, and then he fed the multitude, fed the 5,000. And so what you get now is they, they've left. He sent them on away so that he could dismiss the crowd. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, the boat containing the disciples, and he was alone on the land. And remember that, that, that at least four of these guys are accustomed to being on this body of water because they're accustomed to fishing on it every day of their lives. <clears throat> he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. That, to me, is just a fascinating statement that, that Mark knows, and Mark is writing essentially the gospel that Peter would have dictated to him. <clears throat> so it, what he says is Jesus intended to keep walking right on past him. He's walking on the water, and the intention is he's going to keep going. He's going to go right on past, even though he has seen that they were making headway painfully because the wind was against him. And it's just odd that Jesus' intention is just to keep going right on past him. And it's like, hey, fellas, you all, good luck with that. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. So they didn't think it was Jesus. That was not their response was was, oh, there's Jesus walking on the water. No, they thought some ghost was walking on the water. And so now, not only are they not able to get this boat moving in the right direction, they're also scared to death about what they've seen here on the water. But immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. I'm not sure that I would have calmed down. I'm not, I'm not sure that that would have comforted me very much. Wait a minute, he's walking on the water. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So when you see things like their hearts are hardened, remember back in that Isaiah passage, multiple times he talks about having ears to hear with. Well, the hardening of the heart, you could describe as they didn't believe these things. They, they didn't know how to apply it going forward. They saw what happened with the loaves, but they didn't realize that that had a greater implication than just feeding the 5,000, as though you could say just feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. But that's the point is, is their hearts are hardened. They were not prepared to believe more. So the, at some level, the feeding miracle was lost on them. And, and we can see that same thing in our own lives. We can, we can have God do a great thing like he did for us this year in the healing of Will after what the neurosurgeon and all the doctors said was something he would never recover from and certainly wouldn't be the same person that he had ever been. And yet, you know, the wind and the waves didn't stop permanently. And so when difficulties and trials and and things come, it's easy to have your heart hardened, even though you just had a miracle, and to say, well, you know, okay, this is, you know, I I give up, you know, this is, and, and it's easy to see how they could miss that larger implication of, wait, this is the one who can, who is like God, he can do anything. They, they missed that implication. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. 
and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. I mean, can you imagine this scene? It, it, to me, as you see all these people and they, and they look and they go, there's Jesus. Oh, Jesus is here. Here's what we need to do. We need to go get all the sick people and bring him here, because, bring them here because he can heal them. I mean, that's just not the way that it works anymore. There's, there's nothing like Jesus in the world then or now or ever before. And so the, the people recognize him as healer. And that's part of the point of the, of the belief thing in John's gospel, particularly, is what do they believe? Okay, I believe Jesus is a healer. I believe that he can do this. I believe that he can do that. And, and you kind of atomize those things, and you say, well, th- this is who he is and what he is. And, and we can tend to do that in a church. I've seen, certainly seen the church do that very thing. And, but the, the point is that those, as John says, those are signs, and those signs are meant to point you to a further reality. They're just the, the foretaste of the reality of who he really is. It, it, it's, it's a whole package that's called Messiah, and it's called Son of the Living God, the only begotten Son. So they run around, and they're ready to get, him, get everybody healed. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And I've said this before, that the, the way that garment was, was is the, the fringe of the garment was actually where people believed the symbol of power of a person. So if you were a royal person, you would know that by looking at the fringe of the garment. That's where that would be sewn into the garment. It would identify the person as that. And so what they believed was is that Jesus was this great healer, and, and just by touching the fringe of his garment, they connected with the power to heal because that's where the power was on display, was in the fringe of the garment. And so all they want is to touch the fringe of his garment. That's enough because that's where the power of the individual is, and it identifies him as a, as a person of power. And so they see the power to heal, and so their, their desire is just to touch the fringe of the garment in order that they can connect themselves with the source of that power. And as many as touched it were made well. So, in other words, it worked. <laughs> and so when we see this garment, we, see, we, we hear about the hem, the fringe, all that kind of stuff, but then what we see in the transfiguration later is, is that his garments are transfigured, so the power of Jesus is on display for those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, on the mountain of transfiguration. And what they see is a greater demonstration of the power than is otherwise earthly seen. Because like I said, you can atomize it, and he can be the one who feeds. He can be the one who heals the sick. He can be the one who does this, does that, does, does these other things. He's a great teacher. And that's one of the ways that we atomize him today is we say, oh, he's a great teacher. No, he's more than a great teacher. He is a great teacher, but he's more than a great teacher. And so what they see in the transfiguration is the fullness of the revelation, that it's not the hem of the garment, it's the one who's wearing it, and his power can't be held just in the hem of that garment, that it's everything, that he is himself power. <clears throat> it's, it's important that we pay attention. <laughs> it's important that we ascribe everything to Jesus that he deserves, that we not pigeonhole him to be the one who does this or that or whatever. No, he's the one in whom all things cohere. He is the truth in that way. In the passage that we have from Galatians today, Paul is is trying to explain 
the salvation by faith alone rather than than taking on circumcision which obliges you then to take on the law and he's he will say in other places neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything we are circumcised not by the work of hands but we have a circumcision of the heart and so here paul says to give a human example brothers even with a man-made covenant no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified so those details are all hammered out in advance it's not changed later. No, 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 no. This is what we agreed to. You can amend it like a constitution, but, but these are the things that we have agreed to. And so you can't annul it and you can't amend it without mutual consent. So now the pro- promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So that he is, in that sense, an offspring of Abraham because he is born of a woman. So the promise is made to Abraham, the man of faith, and to his offspring, who is ultimately Jesus, is what Paul's saying here. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So the, the law didn't fulfill anything. The the covenant was already there, and then later becomes the treaty between God and the nations, the nation of Israel. And so that thing, it's, it's secondary to the original covenant. And that original covenant, remember, the way that it was ratified was, was um, Abraham had to cut the birds into pieces and make an alley to walk through, and, and the symbolism there with that kind of treaty is is that if, if um, let it be done to me as it has been to these animals, if I break this covenant, and God won't allow Abraham to be the one who walks through the, that alleyway, only God does it. You see the smoking fire pot that goes through, and that's God, his presence. And so the, the, the future of the covenant doesn't rest on the faithfulness of the people. It rests only on the faithfulness of God. And so then, in the blood of Jesus, that is how we come into permanent communion with him. It has nothing to do with circumcision and the law. It has to do simply with Jesus. For if the inheritance, he says, comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. He points back to the original covenant. The, what happened at Mount Sinai didn't supersede or replace what happened with Abraham. And they'll, they'll tell you that. We are all children of Abraham. And, and that's where they connect with the promise. He said, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And so what he's saying is, is that, so why is the law there? And it, it was intended to serve one function, and that is to tell the people what it meant to be truly the people of God. And, and so it's essentially that he's created a new Eden and given it to them. And in that Eden, these are the rules of conduct. These are the rules of worship. This is the way that you'll display that you're my people and not just some random group of people. No, these are what it means to be my children. These are the kinds of people that it means. This is what it means to be righteous. And this is how to worship. 
And so the point would be then that, that those transgressions had to be shown so that everybody could cry out together about the need for that Redeemer to come, that Redeemer who is the offspring of Abraham, who will redeem all of us. If Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. If a law had been given that would give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all those who believe. In other words, we would receive the benefits of the promise and the covenant in the same way that Abraham did, not by adherence to a law, but by faith in God, faith in his faithfulness, faith in his name. And that's important for us to consider that. But we also need the law, that there are quotes around it the way I said that, that we need the law to tell us what kind of people we are now to be as subjects of his kingdom.